Hello, and welcome to episode 123 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Before we jump into the episode, I want to let you know that I have created a self-paced version of The Modern Manager's Guide to Effective Delegation. The original course, which I launched in August, was such a hit that I am making it more accessible by reducing the price and making it fully self-serve. Now, you may not think that delegation is a critical part of your work, but in fact, we delegate all the time as managers. Have you ever asked or assigned a colleague a piece of work, maybe to create a draft of a presentation or put together a budget or research options for you? Every time we ask someone to help us out by taking over a process or a task or even just a piece of something, even if it's just once, we are in effect delegating. And the amazing thing about delegating and the way that I've approached it in this course is that delegating is really a shorthand term for a whole bunch of things, including setting expectations, setting someone up for success, supporting them along the way, and holding them accountable. And all these skills go far beyond traditional delegation. We need to be able to set expectations for lots of things. We need to have accountability conversations with team members on all kinds of work and behaviors. And in this course, I talk about mindset, which is so fundamental. And as managers, we don't often have time and space to really reflect on our mindset and recognize where our internal dialogue is holding us back from optimizing how we work. Now, I love this course, which is no surprise since I'm the one who made it, but students love it too. They've said it has completely transformed how they think. It has given them the boost they needed to finally ask colleagues for help. And it's helped them create hours of space in their day to be able to focus on the things that really matter. To learn more and to register, go to themodernmanager.com slash courses. And if you are a member of the Modern Manager community, you get 20% off and you can find that discount code in your member portal. All right, today's guest is Aaron Samuels. Aaron is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Blavity Inc., a digital community for Black millennials that reaches over 30 million people per month across five digital properties, including Blavity News, Travel Noir, Afrotech, Shadow and Act, and 2190. Aaron and I talk about race and being Black inside of predominantly white spaces and being Black inside of predominantly Black spaces. We talk about how to start the work of self-reflection and owning your role and perpetuating bias, even when it's not intended. And we talk about what managers can do to create a more equitable culture. You'll hear, this was a messy and complicated conversation for me, but it was so important. So here it is. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Erin, it is such a pleasure to have you today. And I just want to share with our listeners how much appreciation I have for you saying yes, because I think I asked you like literally in the first conversation we'd ever had together and you were (laughs) so gracious and you still said yes. No, of course. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast. All right. Well, now that I've gotten to know you better over the past couple of months, I know I mean, it was clear that you were brilliant from the beginning, but now I know like so much more of how much your brilliance comes through. And so I'm really excited for us to have this conversation, which I hope will be really, really meaty. And I say that because I want to start by talking about identity and intersectionality and kind of building a diverse team or creating a workplace that is reflective of your your people. So maybe you can just share a little bit about 
the way that you've built Blavity and the culture that you've developed there with your team? Sure, sure. Well, thank you. Thank you for the question. And I guess before directly talking about Blavity, one of the things that I want to say is managing people for me, um, or or kind of more broadly leadership, uh, is about understanding what motivates people and what what makes them tick, then creating the right set of circumstances in order for them to flourish. And for me, you only can do that with a deep understanding of the identities that people bring to the table. So for me, looking at leadership or management through a lens of intersectionality and identity is not only a good thing to do, it's, it's, a, it's a must. It's, it's absolutely essential. And so I bring that lens to any conversation about, about leadership and management. So that being said, Blavity, Blavity is a labor of love. It started as the evolution of multiple conversations across a group of friends that, that started you know, when we were all undergrads at Washington University in St. Louis. Broadly, it was, it was based on this, this concept. And you know, Washington University was a primarily white institution, but the black community was, was really tight. And we had this phenomenon where uh, you know, there'd be a lunch table and a couple black people would be sitting there at lunch and then a few more black people would walk by and they'd get waved down and you know, come sit with them. And a few more black people would walk by. Pretty soon the, the table was full. You'd have 10, you know, 15 people. And you know, then, then folks would come start bringing up other, other chairs, start bringing up other tables and, you know, like 30, 40 black people in the center of the cafeteria. And, you know, at this, at this table, you know, on, on one end of the, of the table, you know, people are talking about the party, you know, next weekend, but on the other end, you know, we were talking about campaigning for Obama, you know, on, on, on one end of the table, we're talking about our finance homework and on the other end, love life advice. And, you know, this table as undergrads was, was where you went. If you had, if you had a question, if you had a problem, if you wanted to be and, and build with your community, it represented the, the totality of, and the cacophony of, of all of the different conversations that were happening within the black community. And for me, that, that's, that's what love looked like. You know, that's what community support looked like. And, and we called that phenomenon black gravity, right? This idea of, of black people coming together. And, you know, when we graduated the founding team of Blavity, you know, let's see, you know, Jeff, Morgan, me and Jonathan, we all ended up in primarily white corporate spaces. And again, you know, we were now in primarily white institutions, but, but we didn't have that same undercurrent of, of connectivity bringing us together. And so we started asking ourselves, what does it look like to create a company, to create something digitally that felt the same way that it felt to be at that table? So that, that when you went to a website or when you went to an app on your phone, it would feel like you were at that table um, as undergrads. And so you know, so Morgan ultimately had the idea to create a black media company and kind of brought, brought the band back together to create this. And we decided to name it after that feeling that we had as undergrads, which was, was Black Gravity or, or Blavity for short. And so even from, from the very beginning, we knew that we wanted to create something that was relevant for the Black community. And so we started asking ourselves, okay, what already exists for the Black community? And, and maybe why does what currently exists not always feel as relevant? And what, what we realized is that, that it was hard to create content for the black community because there really isn't just one black community you know the black community is not a monolith there are so many black communities inside of of the black community and this is true even looking just at the founding team of blavity jeff is from south side of chicago large family midwest black you know jonathan is 
the son of two Trinidadian immigrants and has a you know first generation black experience. Morgan is a, a light skinned black female entrepreneur from the Midwest, which has its own kind of set of, of identities within that. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a mixed race black and Jewish kid from New England. And all of those experiences, very, very different, also all very much a part of the black community. And I think one of the things that, that I learned at that lunch table is that one of the beautiful things about the black community is its ability to be inclusive of all of the different types of conversations. People of the African diaspora are one of the most, if not the most diverse racial categories in the world. And so what we said is, is we wanted it to be, be diverse, but what that meant was looking at the diversity within our community. And we said that that needed to be reflective in the content that we create and needed to be reflective in, in our team and in the way that we prioritize different identities in the, in the workplace. So then as, as we started building the organization and, and, and hiring, one of the things that, that we, we made sure is that we wanted to create a space that valued lots of different types of identities, first and foremost, that didn't create just one version of what it meant to be Black. So looking at all of the different types of Black identities that could be reflected within our, our organization. Um, and then more broadly, also saying, what does it mean to be a person that has a stake in the flourishing of the Black community, which is, is true for Black people, but also true for, for many non-Black people too. And as we built the team, you know, saying, what, what does it mean to, to build an organization that is diverse and inclusive and also Black first? and creating those dynamics so that everybody who works at Blavity is 100% aligned to our mission and our vision of, of creating a world in which all Black people are happy, even if that means that not everybody in the organization identifies as Black, even among the Black people in the organization, that, that not everybody identifies as Black in the same way. There are so many things that you just said that I like I want to ask about. So I'm just going to pick one to start with because there's so many things running through my head. But I, I want to start with this idea of the diversity within the Black community and hear more about kind of how, given the kind of conversations around racism, anti-racism, Black Lives Matter that's kind of circulating in our social and public spaces and, and awareness right now in, in our political system, kind of, you know, like how do we... And when I say we, I mean managers, right? Like how do we like engage this kind of multiplicity of identities and kind of not bring ourselves and, and look at a, a team member and kind of make assumptions about who they are and what their experience is. Like, and I, I feel like I'm stumbling over my words because like this is complicated stuff. And I, I'm thinking about like, you know, when I see another woman I can make so many assumptions about her because of our potential shared experiences. And when I see a man, I can make assumptions about him. And all of that is just assumptions. And I feel like we all have assumptions about what race means. And so I'm kind of curious about like, are there things that you've done or seen that have worked well or things to avoid doing that help you kind of understand these various identities on your team and not lean into stereotypes or assumptions as you're engaging people who are different from you? Yeah, no, I think I think that makes a lot of sense, and and I'm by no means perfect on this front either as as a manager. Um, but there's a few things that I try to keep in mind. So the the first is education, right? I, I think that that the education system uh, in the United States is is so fundamentally flawed. <laughs> the history of this country was was built on anti-black racism. That is the the primary cause of the economic advantage that the United States has in the global economy today 
and so much of our culture and our foundations come from slavery and and then from you know years even after slavery of d- different types of discrimination discriminatory policies and oppressions so those things are so present in our day-to-day lives but we're not taught about them in the in the right way in in our education system you know in my my opinion like that that is american history american history is, is more or less the the history of of oppressing black people there's there's other other things that that america has done wrong too and and other people that that we've oppressed for sure um but that's such so fundamental and i think it it does not occupy anywhere near the right amount of of mind space in our in our education growing up and so i think what that means is that it sets a precedent that it also doesn't occupy anywhere close uh, to the amount of time that we make in our mental models when we're making assumptions about people, right? You know, sometimes, you know, and even, even great managers will have, have that be a mental check, say, you know, they're, they're thinking, they're making a judgment about somebody and, and they'll, they'll put it through a lens of, oh, but am I maybe also being a little bit racist? Or am I, am I also maybe having an assumption based on something? And I, I oftentimes think it's a check, maybe it, it's, you know, 10% of somebody's decision calculus, when really perhaps it should be 60% of somebody's you know, decision calculus, right? right? Like it should make up a much larger chunk. So the first thing that I, that I often say is not just are you considering you know, if you might be making an assumption you know, due to race, but you triple that. You know? <laughs> like, are, are, like, like are, are you considering it? And then are you considering it again? And, and can you check that? Can you do that? So that's internal work, right? And that, that's work about kind of educating you know, ourselves as leaders, making sure that we're, we're constantly reading, that we're staying up to date. So that, that's one part of it. That's not going to solve everything, though, right? I mean, we could read every book on on racism and, and still be still be racist, um, or still create an organization that has racist outcomes, even if we're not individually, you know, you know, racist ourselves, right? Whatever that means, racism happens at the institutional level and the structural level in its insidious nature. So, so then the second part is okay. What what do we do about that? You know, as, as managers, our job is to create culture, um, to create cultures of our spaces, to create a, t- a team culture where people can support each other so that they can collectively win. So I say, okay, what can we do to create a culture where if assumptions are made, because inevitably they'll be made, you know, regardless of how, how hard we try to not make them, how do we create a culture where they don't live for that long, right? Like how do we reduce the shelf life of an assumption? And so for me, I, that oftentimes is about creating cultures of dialogue, right? Like how do you, how do you create a moment where if, if you either say something problematic or create a policy that has a problematic implication that you don't see, that somebody else has the ability to name that, to call it out, and for that thing to change without that person suffering any type of social consequence as a result of, of naming that phenomenon. Now, there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, sometimes that means creating anonymous feedback mechanisms so that then nobody will have an individual social consequence. That works sometimes. You know, there's also there's pros and cons to that. You know, sometimes it means creating you know, cultures of, of dissent. I know organizations that, that make sure that there's always somebody in, you know, in every meeting that is a dissenter to say like, you know, to, to name the other side of, of something. Um, you know, one practice that sometimes I've done for large strategy plannings is something called a pre-mortem where, where basically we say, if, when, when this goes wrong and, it, and we assume that it fails, what is the reason that it fail? And then, and then we backtrack from that to then try to make sure that thing doesn't happen. But it's putting it yourself in a different type of a mindset to look at the potential negatives of a thing. And if you apply that to a, a racial justice lens and an identity lens, sometimes interesting things can come up. So again, so that's, that's the, the, the second piece, right, is, is creating culture where assumptions don't live that long. And then the third thing that I would say is as individuals and as managers, finding ways of checking yourself in public so that it sets a precedent that it's, it's okay for other people to do that too. So it means 
when people call you out for making a mistake, either public or privately, you know, adopting a, a practice of of acknowledging that, of saying, this is what I said previously, this is why I was wrong, let's move forward. Because that also sends a signal to the organization that it's okay for them to do that too. And, and you know, eventually that, that that's the expectation. And then it creates an opportunity for people to be in dialogue as opposed to just operating defensively or, or protecting themselves and, and wanting to look perfect. Well, and I want to pick up on a couple of those things that you just said that I think are are so important in leadership in general, and then especially important when we're talking about difficult things around race and identity. This idea of acknowledging when you make a mistake, I know for me, like I so do not want to hurt my team members' feelings, right? I so do not want to say something that's going to make them feel disrespected, right? Like it's part of my core value of believing that each person is worthy. And yet, as you just said, like, inevitably, we are going to make mistakes. Inevitably, we are going to make assumptions about people that we just, it just happens. It's how our human brains are wired. And it takes many, many, many years of rewiring our thinking. And I don't even know if we can ever get there. And so being able to just sit with that and say, like, okay, I know I'm not going to be perfect. And I'm going to trust that my team is going to help me learn where I can be better. And I'm going to acknowledge, like, I love the ouch, oops thing. Like I used to say as a facilitator, like just assume best intent. And then I learned like, no, that's a really bad thing to say to people. (laughs) That doesn't help anybody. Don't assume best intent. Acknowledge when there is an ouch. Acknowledge when something was said that doesn't sit right or that triggers or that is harmful or disrespectful or whatever it is. But also acknowledge that in most situations, the person wasn't intending for that to be painful. They weren't intending for it to be disrespectful. But we have to kind of acknowledge those moments. So I love that you're like lifting up that that's part of the culture that you create and the kind of culture that we can all strive to create as leaders, to be able to create spaces amongst our team where we can all have those oops out moments that are going to inevitably happen and move forward from them. Totally. I, I think that's, that's super important. And I would actually take it one step further. I think that the oops out moments are, are really important to have just for any team member. But for leaders and for, for managers, I would say that the stakes are even higher. And so the, the way that, that I usually try to frame it, especially when I'm talking to, to other leaders on my team, is that every difficult moment or every difficult conversation is an opportunity for you to earn the trust of somebody on your team. And what you want to do as a leader is take as many of those opportunities as possible, because most judgments that are formed about you as a manager are happening just within people's minds, and you'll never get the opportunity to correct it. You know, people will witness you, they'll see your behavior on an email thread, or they'll hear you talk to somebody else, they'll hear about you from the way that you interacted with with other people. And you don't you don't ever have an opportunity to correct those judgments because they're they're happening about you, but you're not in those moments. So when you find yourself in a moment that you have an opportunity to show somebody how good a person you are, or how kind a person you are, or how good a listener you are, or or how thoughtful you can be in acknowledging a mistake in that moment you need to take it because that's only a small fraction of the total judgments that are being made about you. So I I, I like to look at it through that frame because then it's not that you're just trying to make sure that you're handling your oops, ouch moments, you know, above a certain threshold. Like you just want to do a good enough job. It's more to say, no, this is a time that you can create an opportunity for yourself to win the trust of somebody on your team that can last for years. And why would you not want to rise to that occasion as, as best as you possibly can? Oh my gosh, so beautiful. 
Okay, I want to go back to something else that you raised, which is these kind of all white or predominantly white organizational cultures that we've developed. And like, I'm trying to imagine what a non predominantly white male organizational culture feels like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we could talk about like, how do we change culture? But first, maybe I'm kind of curious what your take is on what is culture like when it's not predominantly white male culture? Yeah. So I, I, I love that. I love that question. And I, I think the, fir- the first thing to recognize is predominantly white male culture is not the norm. It's not the norm anywhere. And the fact that we have assumed that it is the norm is, I think, one of the problems because it's, 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 not, it's not actually reflective of the world. The reason that oftentimes we think that way is because when you look at aggregations of wealth, privilege, money, and power, those rooms oftentimes look like they're primarily white male dominated, which is, I think, a problem. And I've been in my share, um, my fair share of those spaces. Blavity is not that. And, and it's really beautiful to be at an organization that is predominantly black organization and predominantly people of color that has primarily women on the leadership team and has a black woman CEO. And that changes so many things about the fabric of the way that we operate. But what, what I would say is, while that's, that's different for me in terms of a corporate structure, that has that type of dynamic. It's not different for me in terms of communities that I've been in. You know, many of the communities that I grew up in uh, were women-led or POC-led. Many of the places that I felt most, most at home were, were women-led and, and, and POC-led. And I think that that's, that is true for a lot of people, especially for a lot of people of color. But then we find when we end up in these, in these corporate spaces that it's not reflective of that. And I think that that can have some different implications. I, I would say that, that one thing that I've seen that's just different which partly is probably, you know, because of the, the black women leadership, but also partly because of just the culture that we have as, as an organization, is that we spend a lot of time talking about people's feelings at Blavity. When we think through organizational decisions, oftentimes we say, okay, how is this going to affect this person? And, and we'll go down to the, the junior, like individual employee level and say, oh, well, we think that this might rub this person the wrong way. Let's, let's talk about that. And that's part of our decision apparatus when, when, we, when we think through rolling out organizational change. That's not something that, that I witnessed at other white male-led organizations that I worked at, that, that actually talking about the way that decisions would affect people's feelings could have a meaningful impact on the strategy behind a choice. That's not the only way that, that we're different. We're different in a lot of ways, but, but for me, that, that feels super meaningful in the way that, that it affects leadership of junior talent. Yeah, that is definitely not something I hear companies talk about often and, and bringing in the feelings and the, the human impact. That is very unusual. I wonder about how culture like that gets developed. So, you know, when you're a small startup, right? And, you know, as you had, we're talking about your story, right? Where like there was a very particular focus on blackness and what it means to be black and how you were going to build this company to be reflective of that. And I'm imagining that most people who are listening either aren't CEOs of businesses or have not brought that view into how they are building their team or their team culture. So I'm kind of curious if you have any advice or thoughts for how people who are either leading small businesses or running teams within bigger cultural organizations can think about how do I start to shift the culture to be more open and inclusive and equitable and you know, despite the kind of normative world that's happening around them. And I, and I say normative meaning like we're all swimming in something. So if I want my team's culture to not be that thing, what can I do to make it not that and to make it something richer and better? 
Yeah. And I think that this is true, if not for all managers, then, then perhaps for, for many, which is that, that there's something psychological that, that drives us to become a manager in the first place. And sure, sometimes it's luck and privilege and career paths, but that's just enough to get you to the manager level. It doesn't make you want to stay there. And, and I find the people that, that stay in roles where they're managers of people oftentimes are trying to create a better world than the world in which they grew up in or the world in which they operate or, or live in outside of, of their workplace. When you're a manager, you have the ability to, to make the rules, to change the rules of the game about how people interact with each other, what is prioritized, and what holds value. And I think that oftentimes that can come from a place of growing up and not having access to those things or, or operating in a world outside of your job where maybe you don't feel like you have full autonomy or full powerful control or where you, need, where you live in a problematic world where the rules don't make sense. And I think that that's especially true for, for leaders of color, but, but I think it's true for all managers, really. And so, and you know, check me on that. I'm sure there's a manager on the podcast that's like, I love the world around me. You're wrong, Aaron. <laughs> but but, but I, think, I think at least, let, let me say for, for many, we're pulling against the tensions of the world outside of us. So then, then what do you do? If the world is broken and perhaps our experiences up to this moment have been broken and now we have the ability to say there are at least there's at least one person who reports to me, you know, if, if not an entire team of people that report to me, that I am able to bend the rules of the universe so that they function better. How can I do that differently than the experiences that I've had up to this moment? And I think that that, that question has a lot of urgency to it. And I think that when managers are operating at their best, they've created a world within their organization that is a little bit better than the world outside those walls. And I think that's what the goal is as a manager. It's, it's to, to create a microchasm of the world that you want to live in, as opposed to the world that, that you actually live in. It is seriously like you just went inside my brain and my heart and pulled out my life's mission right there. Like <laughs> I, 100% that is why I do the work I do with managers. It's specifically because I believe that we spend so much of our waking hours in a work context. And if we as managers can make the lives of our colleagues that much better, if we can create a context in which they feel that much better about the work they're doing, the people they're engaging with, the contributions they're making to society, their organization, their team, you know, their personal development, then like we have done good things in the world. And exactly. so I just like, oh, I, I knew I wanted to have you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, and I completely agree with you. And so I think that's important for everybody and, and for everything. And, and of course, the stakes continue to then be raised when you add in different lenses of oppression. So when you add, you add in racial justice or gender justice, justice for different types of sexual orientations or, or religions, every single one of those lenses continues to increase the stakes for that, that baseline mission that we're already operating in, which is to create a better world. So amazing. And I'm so sad that we have to end. So can you tell us, Aaron, about a great manager that you worked for and what made this person so fantastic? Yeah, I can. And I think I, I was fortunate early in my career that the first like three major managers that I had were all women of color. And this is when, when I was working at Bain & Company doing you know, financial strategy consulting. And I think that was, that was a rarity even then. I just happened to like have this leadership. And I think that absolutely informed my perspective about you know, the differences between working for women of color versus working for straight white men. 
whom I've, I've had some pretty, you know, good managers, by the way, who were straight white men too, but it felt different to report to women of color. And, and one of these early managers, I remember I was building the financial model for, um, for a pretty intense client. And we'd been working on the model for three or four weeks and we had to turn it in. It was due the next morning. Um, it was due at like 10 a.m. And it was around 4 p.m. that I realized that I had made a mistake in the model such that the entire model had to be rebuilt. <laughs> um, like it was a pretty bad one that, you know, it wasn't completely my fault. We had some bad, some bad inputs, but it was mostly my fault. And I would say that it was, it was like 70% my fault and it was 100% my job to fix it. And I was the only person that, that could fix it because I'd, I'd been the one building the model. And I, I kind of like went to my manager with my tail between my legs. And I was like, I was like, oh man, like this is, this is rough, you know? And, and of course, like it's rough for her too, you know, cause you know, she's ultimately accountable for this. And we both had to turn it into to our, you know, supervisor, our team lead. And I remember, you know, she said, yeah, like, let me get my head around this and I'll, I'll pop down to your desk in an hour. And then she, she came down to my desk with all of her stuff, with her, her, um, her computer and said, I can't help you fix this because I'm not as close to it as you are, but I got a whole bunch of other work to do and I'll sit next to you and do my other work until it's done. And then I'll be here to answer any questions. And I was there, I was there up all night. I think I left at like four in the morning that night. And even though she didn't have to be there, I um, mean, in theory could have just like answered my questions via email. She stayed there next to me the entire time, ordered food, and just was, just was there doing other things because she didn't wanna, want me to feel that I was, I was alone you know, solving this problem by myself. And I, and I never forgot that moment. And I remember that because for the rest of our project together, she had earned my trust and earned my respect, and it, and it made me more willing to go the extra mile for her moving forward. And that matters to me so much because then as a, as a leader, I then see myself sometimes finding moments like that where she didn't just say, hey, we have a problem, you know, you need to solve it. She said, let me take this as an opportunity to earn the trust and respect of my, my junior teammate because that will, that will pay off in the long run. And it, and it absolutely did for our relationship and, and it, it informed the way that I see myself as a leader. Wow. So incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. And lastly, where can people learn more about you and Blavity and keep up with what you're doing? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, you can learn more about Blavity at Blavity.com or, or BlavityInc.com, which is our, our corporate site that'll kind of link to all of the different sites that, that we operate. And then for me, AaronSamuels.com, um, where you can you know, learn more about me and my work both with Blavity and, uh, and some of my work outside of the organization. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aaron. I just, I love talking with you and I so look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you had me and I love this conversation as well. Well, I hope that you can see now why I asked Aaron to be a guest after only speaking with him for a few minutes. Now, instead of a special guest bonus for members of the Modern Manager community this week, instead, I am offering my brief guide to talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion with your team. To get this guide, become a member and go to themodernmanager.com join. And when you do, you get other episode guides, prior guest bonuses, and of course, 20% off that self-paced version of the Modern Manager's Guide to Effective Delegation. Now, if you just want the guide, that is available at the online store at themodernmanager.com shop. All the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter, which is at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 
Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.